Last week we came down off the Mount of Beatitude with a great challenge. And that was to say that every time that we had a bad attitude, that we would um, take $10 and put it in our bad attitude jar. And then every time we did one of the Beatitudes, every time we prayed for those who persecuted us or that we were mournful over the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own life, every time we showed mercy, we could take our deposits back out. So who created this bad attitude, beatitude jar from last week? Okay, so your assignment this week is to do that. I just want to give you an update on my um, deposits that I had to make this past week. Well, first of all, it started like uh, mid-afternoon last Sunday. How many know the preachers are really tired Sunday afternoons, right? Well, Lisa asked me to do a chore. And I got to admit, I got a little snarky. And she said, that will be $10, please, in the jar. Well, so after I had a little nap, I did the dishes, so I was able to take the $10 back out. I was even. And then I had to go to a mandated conference, a Methodist conference. It was actually on sexual ethics in the church. So here's what I learned about the fifth time I've had to go through, like all the clergy, and that is really can't even touch anybody even to shake their hand or you'll get in trouble, right? So I'm just going to bubble wrap myself, and uh, if you want to hug me, you have to come up and do that. I can't really hug you, or I'll get thrown in jail someday, but nevertheless, I had a bad attitude about that, so that was $10, and what really compounded was, it was 80 miles from here in North Tampa, and I locked my keys in the church van and couldn't get home in time, so that was another $10. And then when we were ready to launch upward, we had a cease and desist order from our county because we can't use our own field for our own purposes because of the way it's owned. Let me tell you that the infuriation of my soul, I sh probably should have put $100 in at that time, but I did pray about the situation. I did calm down and was able to make a withdrawal. And then I did the worst of all rookie mistakes, and that is, I got a little snarky with my endodontist. How many know that's never a good thing? Because I've been waiting for a year and a half to get two abscesses treated in my mouth. And the way they turf you and jock you around and make sure things line up and all that. And so when she finally got in there, she says, wow, there's a lot of decay in there. And that's when I about hit the roof. Okay, so that was 10 more dollars, so, but I was nice, and I apologized and all that, so I got to take $10 out. And then, uh, as you know, I'm training for this century ride, which is on November 9th, and uh, we're building up, and so yesterday we did 62 miles. Okay, it killed me for the rest of the day, but I did it nonetheless, and as we were crossing over the uh, Nokomis uh, drawbridge over there, some angry old snowbird, had to be a snowbird because everybody's so nice in the comas, right? He buzzed us in his convertible. Did you ever get buzzed while you were on a bike? I mean, he made it a point to get as close to us as we could as we were crossing that bridge. And he started hollering all kinds of obscenities. And he decided to bless us with a part of his anatomy that I can't share with you at church. Okay. 
So I had had it. Those rides are brutal, and uh, your, your uh, layer or your margin for being nice uh, really gets thin when you feel like your life is being threatened. So I told him he could do something uh, that would make him much more pleasant, and that is to keep his lips closed for once. Um, so I, I end up owing 10 more dollars. So at the end of the week, I just said to Lisa, I'm, I'm in for about 150 bucks on the bad attitude jar. And she said, why don't you just use your credit card? <laughs> so that's the love and support that I get at home, by the way. <laughs> but keep that, it really does make you sensitive. When you're paying for your sins, it does make you sensitive to becoming more like Christ in terms of the Beatitudes. And so one of the most psychologically and emotionally healthy things you can do is to really answer the ancient existential question of the ages, which was really made popular a while back by the old rock group called The Who. Who remembers The Who? And their famous song, Who Are You, Who Who, who, who? And they asked that question about 98,000 times during the song itself. Who are you? Now, you know that if you don't know who you are, chances are very great that someone or something will do a really good job of defining you for you. It might be your job. It might be your parents, your spouse, your children, your friends, or worse yet, your circumstances. Even if those circumstances are great or if those circumstances aren't so great. Or even worse than that, your past. Your past. Or even worse than that, you'll end up trying to be someone or something that you are not. Instead of living into the uniqueness of God's creative genius in your soul, you'll end up trying to be like other people. And how many know that's always a nightmare? It's always a nightmare. And it's always very unhealthy. But about a decade ago, I uh, experienced something that was kind of akin to uh, an identity crisis. Went through a patch of rough things and, and, and all that stuff. So I decided to go see a therapist. How many know it's good to get a check under the hood every once in a while? For me, it's about every five minutes, okay? So I go to a therapist and just said, you know, told him how I was feeling and, and those types of things. And he asked me a question. You know, I just thought he would sit there and listen as I blathered on and on about my life, but he didn't. So he asked me a question. He asked, who is John Guerry? I said, what? Huh? Well, I'm me, of course. And he said, don't answer this question in terms of what you do, in terms of your position, your title, your status, your role. And don't even answer this question according to what people think about you or say about you, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. And so in befuddlement, I bumbled, fumbled, and stumbled as I grappled for some kind of identity answer as to who I am. He had compassion on me. He sensed my issue. And he said, I'll tell you what. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And what I want you to do is to write out an identity statement. I said, okay. 
Don't know what that has to do with anything, but I will do it. So for the next couple of weeks, I prayed and I meditated and I thought about it. And I read plenty of scriptures. And I came up with an identity statement. And this is what it is. Now, I want to say this is my very first driver license, okay? In 1980, what a handsome young man, amen? Can you believe that Lisa fell in love with that face? I still am stunned that she did. But nevertheless, I uh, came up with this statement, which is, I am a beloved but broken child of God who is becoming more like Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. So if you ask me who I am, it's probably going to revolve around this type of statement. I am a beloved and broken child of God who is becoming like Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. Now, I can't tell you the power of knowing who you are, the power of not letting anybody define who you are, the power of living in the uniqueness that God has created you. Now, knowing who you are, though, is not simple. When I'd asked the psychologist that, the therapist, he said, most people don't know who they are. And they just try to be something that they can't be. Or they try to be something that they are not. So there's a lot of power. So if you've never done that, and it doesn't matter to me what your age is, if you've never sat down and say, this is who I am, I want to encourage you to do that. The greatest discovery, however, even beyond knowing who you are, is to know who Jesus Christ is. And so today as we conclude our mountain series, we do so on the mountain of verification to see exactly who he is. The base camp for our climb is Matthew 17 verses 1 through 9. Uh, Let me read it for you. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will put up three shelters or altars. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And everybody say this next phrase with me. Listen to him. One more time. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. After six days refers to the numbers of days that had passed when Jesus asked the question of his disciples. Who do people say that I am? 
And you remember the response in Matthew 16. Some say that you are John the Baptist, reanimated. Some say you're Elijah the prophet. But then Jesus turned the question around. It is the most important question you and I will ever have to answer. It's the most important question of history. The most important question of eternity. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Peter, the vaunted spokesman for the group, he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, six days had passed since then, and Jesus wants to verify his identity with the disciples. Jesus wants them to know, listen, I am going to call you to abandon your life and to sacrifice everything for me. I am to, I'm going to call you to help me build my church, to take this certain direction. And I want you to know who I truly am. I'm just not anybody. I am something very special. And I am going to ask you to lay down your life for me. I'm not a second-rate God. I am not one of many ways. In fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to get to the Father. Because of who I am, it will require your utmost and your all. And so he takes them to a mountain. Remember what we said at the beginning of our series. Mountains are places where God loves to reveal himself to us. This is a high mountain. It is either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Scholars are not quite sure which. But we do know it was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. I, later on it became known as the Mount of Transfiguration. I like to call it the Mount of Verification because of the supernatural phenomena that happened there. This is where Jesus Christ is physically transformed before them. Here his face radiantly shines like the sun and his clothes become white as light. Now I want you to put yourself uh, in the um, position of the disciples. They're seeing this. Okay, can you imagine this? All of a sudden, woof, Jesus takes on his eternal state right before them. Would you say, wow, what's up? What's going on? Now, it's interesting that John, in the apocalyptic section of the New Testament, also known as the book of Revelation, describes Jesus, a glorified Jesus, in a similar way. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 we have his head and hair were like wool. Much like many of us in here this morning. Amen? Amen? Okay. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp doubled, or double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And we have descriptions of Jesus Christ in a glorified state in both the Old and the New Testaments. But I love John Wesley, our founding forefathers, summary of this transfigurational event. I love when he says, the indwelling deity darted out his rays 
through, let me read it on here, the indwelling deity darted out its rays through the veil of flesh, and that with such transcendent splendor. His face shone with divine majesty, like the sun in its strength, and all his body was so irritated by it that his clothes could not conceal his glory, but became white and glittering as the very light with which he covered himself as with a garment. Now, would you say that deserves another wow if you saw this? So for me, that would have been it. Okay, good. I know who you are. You're God. Let's go do something about that. But yet God adds another verification as to the true identity of his son. Not even just this close encounter of the third kind was enough. As son of God and God the son, the father grants yet another. Out of thin air, he materializes two of the great Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. I was talking to some unchurched people yesterday, and they said, well, what's the message all about tomorrow? And I said, it's about the Mount of Transfiguration. They said, what in the world is that? We never heard about it. What happened there? And I told them about Jesus being glorified and Moses and Elijah showing up. We said, we know who Moses is, but who's this Elijah dude? Wait a minute, weren't they dead? Centuries before Jesus ever showed up. And I said, yes, another convincing proof that when we're dead, we're not dead. We have eternal life. And so my question is, why these two people? I mean, there's thousands of people God could have chosen from the Old Testament to be there glorified with his son. But there's a couple reasons. The first is that both of them had previously experienced a mountaintop experience, a supernatural visitation from God himself. You remember when God visited Moses on top of Mount Sinai when he gave unto him the Ten Commandments. And when I was telling the group this yesterday, they said, you know, I asked them, like, you know why Moses originally went up to, you know, Mount Sinai? And they were stumped because they didn't grow up in church and they don't know the Bible. And I said, well, it was because Moses had so many migraine headaches trying to pastor that many people. He had to go up and get two tablets. That's why I take two a leave after I leave here in a couple of minutes, okay? Get it? Come on, that is very funny. Okay, go back to sleep. Okay, anyhow. But when God visited Moses on top of Mount Sinai the first time, the glory was so penetrating and it was so effervescent that Moses' face radiated reflected and refracted the glory of God to such brilliance that when he came down off the mountain, it scared the heck out of people. Therefore, Moses had to wear a veil. Elijah also had a divine visitation on top of Mount Carmel when he was in opposition to the Baal prophets and God rained down fire from heaven to defeat them. But even deeper than that, more significantly, Moses is the great lawgiver. He represents the law of Old Testament Israel. And Elijah is the greatest of all the prophets 
of the Old Testament. Jesus, being full of grace and truth, as John 1.14 tells us, and the Savior of humanity represents the perfect balance between the two. And they're talking about that during this transfiguration. Now, if seeing Jesus transformed and seeing Moses and Elijah materializing out of nothing wasn't enough to verify Jesus' identity, God the Father shows up himself in a bright cloud. Now, this is very significant because in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, Clouds are visible representations of the invisible God. We first see this cloud um, when Moses had to go up a second time and get uh, a new edition of the Ten Commandments. You remember what happened to the first ones, right? He threw them against the golden calf and they exploded. God reissues the commandments. Moses goes up and leads him by a cloud. We also see it when he led the Israelites by day through the desert. We also see this cloud again when the kavod of God, the glory of God, came down upon the tabernacle to consume the sacrifice. And the Israelites were given a command in Exodus 34, or 43. They were never allowed to move unless the cloud itself moved. So we see this cloud thing working and we see it again as it comes down and it it envelops the disciples, Peter, John, and James. Now, you know, that is pretty amazing stuff, right? But yet there's another verification that happens. This is four levels of verification as to the true identity of Jesus Christ. God the Father, through the bright cloud, speaks. And he speaks to the disciples with this term. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Is there any doubt now? Two of the greatest verbal affirmations a parent can ever give to their kids, whether they're grandkids or regular kids or whatever, is to simply say to your child or your grandchildren, I love you and I am proud of you. Who here has ever heard their parents say that to them, by the way? Put your hand up. Doesn't that make all the difference in the world? I love you, and I'm proud of you. I said it to Kelly in the first service. I'll say it again. Kelly, I love you, and I'm proud of you. She always says, yeah, I know. (laughs) Is she even here today? Did she she slink out? Where's Kelly? Where is she? Oh, she's hiding back in the cloud. Okay. <laughs> I love you, and I'm proud of you. That is music to a child's ears. This is what the Heavenly Father is saying to the Heavenly Son, our Savior. 
I love you, and I am proud of you. He also said the very same thing at another critical juncture of Jesus' ministry. You remember it in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism when he allowed his cousin, John the Baptist, to baptize him in the Jordan River. When he came up out of the river, the dove alighted upon his shoulder and the cloud spoke again from the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father's verification of the son's identity really wasn't for Jesus' sake. Jesus knew who he was. That's why he always got in trouble. He said, I am the great I am. I have descended from heaven. I will ascend back to heaven. He knew who he was. But their reaction here is very fascinating. If you ever want to have fun when you read your Bibles, especially the Gospels, every time Jesus does something or says something really awesome, check out the disciples' reaction. It will make you laugh. Because you know the disciples are chuckleheads just like us, right? And when they finally get all this verification as to the true identity of Jesus, they don't sit back and say, yeah, cool, we we knew it all along. (laughs) They don't. The word tells us that they were filled with phobos. They were filled with fear. They were filled with dread. They were filled with terror. As they realized that they had been in the presence of, of divine majesty, of divinity. Being in the presence of God is harrowing and it is horrifying. Peter, James, and John's reaction to the experiencing God in this way is very similar to Abraham on Mount Moriah, to Isaiah in the temple, to Ezekiel at the river of Chebar. Each and every time God shows up, people fall as if they're dead or they wish they were dead. You see, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his otherworldliness makes us understand very, very quickly that he is God and we are not. I'd like to say that he is awful in his awesomeness and we cannot bear it. It is too much, too much to be in the presence of God. The late great theologian R.C. Sproul described being in the presence of God as a scary movie. It is terrifying but you just can't look the other way. Now, once Jesus calms his disciples, their instinct is to get busy. God showed up, right? Let's get to work, right? Isn't that what we want to do? And um, so being in the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the greatest lawgiver and the greatest uh, prophet Peter wants to memorialize the event by building three altars. Jesus tells him no. 
And we're going to find out next week as we start our valley series why he said no to this. And then Jesus issues a very strict order. Don't tell anybody about this event until after the resurrection. So what do we do, though? This event is for us, the disciples of all ages. Now that we have climbed together the Mount of Verification, now that we know Jesus' true identity, that he's not one of many, that he's not an inferior or a second-rated God, now that we know who he truly is, what do we do? Let me know that every time God reveals himself from us, he is expecting a response. A response. A response from you and a response from me. Well, we can say, well, you know what we're going to do? We know who Jesus is. We're going to pledge our love and our loyalty, our adoration, our worship, our fellowship, our followership, our faithfulness, all to him. You're right, and we should. And that's the basic requirement. I mean, that's the least we can do. (laughs) I mean, this is God we are talking about. This is God, as we read in the Nicene Creed, God incarnated in the flesh. What are we supposed to do here? So this story isn't just a good biblical story and we all go home. We are to do what the Father told Peter, James, and John to do. Listen to him. Listen to him. Whereas my old Italian grandfather used to say with broken English, pay attention. Think about it, if you will, for just a moment. The father could have said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son, worship him. We all would have been great with that. How many of you know that's easy to do? Especially on Sunday mornings. He could have said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, serve him. You know what? That's pretty easy to do. But he said something more important, and there's a reason why he said it. When he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God wants to verify our true identity as the children of God. You're like pastor who said, what to who now? Jesus said oftentimes, if you love me, you will listen to what I say. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, you will listen to me. You will listen to me to verify your own identity as the children of God. As we hear in places like John 1.12, he has given us power to be the children of God, meaning he has given us power to listen, to obey him. Of all the things the Father could have told us to do and Peter, James, and John's to do, he said, listen to him. So what is at stake in our listening? Well, we glorify God more when we listen to him, amen, than when we don't, amen. Our lives are better, as we've been seeing throughout the series, when we listen to God than when we don't, amen. There's something deeper. 
And it's found in the words that are used here when it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The term is actually metamorphous. You guys like that word? Remember the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, right? It's the exact same word that the Apostle Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, listen to the scripture, and it tells us what's at stake in our listening. 1 Corinthians 3, 18. 1 Corinthians 3.18, thank you. And we with, and we all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed. Metamorphized, the same word that was used for Jesus' transfiguration. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Every time we listen to the Son of God, we're being spiritually transformed. Amen? In other words, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ himself, spiritually. Someday we will be physically transformed, like he was here. But we go through tons of spiritual transformations as we walk and journey with him now and as we listen to him. This fits nicely exactly what Paul said is the goal of everything about the church. The goal of becoming saved. The goal of knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, leader and forgiver. Romans 8, 29, that we might be conformed. Same word, metamorphosized into the image of his dear son. So what this text is calling us to do is to go for our own transformation, to verify our true identity as the children of God by listening to the Son of God. And each and every time we do, we come a little more transformed into his likeness. Now, as we said last week, this is not about self-will, self-power, or self-help. This is miraculous. This is about the Spirit of God working in the people of God, transforming us day by day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, from one level of glory to another. So if you're kind of stuck, like we all get stuck in our walk with Jesus Christ, if you're getting dissatisfied, if you're walking around saying the words that are absolutely banned and forbidden in this church, how you doing today? Same old, same old. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter, even unto the full day, Psalm 84, 11, which we see right here as we are being transformed with ever-increasing likeness, ever-increasing glory. The great work of the Son in our soul happens when we listen. 
So if you're stuck, open up those Bibles, start reading those Gospels, and listen. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for revealing who Jesus truly is. Thank you for giving us the ability to be transformed. <laughs> we thank you that we are so unlike those other religions. We say work for it, do all you can do, and then we'll figure it out in the end. No, that is not Christianity. Christianity is about becoming every day with ever-increasing glory more like you. The greatest miracle, the greatest project, the greatest work, the greatest identity is to be a child of God becoming more like the Son of God as we listen. Give us hearts to listen today and let the miracles spring forward in our hearts all for your glory.